Good morning. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking at the passage that Evan read from earlier. Um, So while you're turning there, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, the passage that we'll look at directed at slaves and masters um, is a bit like Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 and Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 32 in that it addresses very real issues uh, to a group of people that are with, actually within the church. Um, um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 32 was particularly important because uh, the people that Paul is addressing in this letter were either married or going to be married, and so instructions on marriage was important. Likewise, with Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, there are couples in the church who were either parents or going to be parents, and, so, and there were children within the church, and so um, that section was important. Well, it's the same thing um, for the section that we're looking at um, today. Uh, Paul is giving instructions regarding the relationship between uh, slaves and masters, and that was a common relationship for that time, and there were lots of slaves and masters within the church itself um, in Ephesus. Um, it's estimated there were 60 million slaves um, in the Roman Empire at this time, and according to some estimators, that would be roughly be one-fifth of the world's population at the time. So one-fifth of the population, 60 million slaves, probably a lot of them within, this, within the church. So slaves and masters made up a big percentage of the people that Paul was writing to. Um, and so we see him refer to it here. We see him refer to the same um, in the sister letter to Colossians. We see him address it there. We see him address it in Titus. We see Peter address the same relationship um, in his epistle. And so it definitely required time, deserved time, um, and deserved the ink that he gave to it. If you've heard a sermon on this passage, you most likely heard it um, applied to the workplace. We're going to do the same thing today, and I'll make a case for that, a brief case for that. Um, in just a bit. But if you think about it that way, um, applying it to the workplace, you can see the importance of this passage then for us. Um, if you work roughly 50 to 60 hours in a week, which I think is pretty common anymore, that would be roughly a third of your week. And so you can see right from that standpoint, you're, you're spending a third of your week. You're probably spending more time with people that you work with um, than any other relationship you have outside of the one that you have at home. And so this is definitely something that is um, appropriate uh, for us. And contextually, given that this will address about one-third of your time, um, that should make us sit up and listen in light of the context of Ephesians, especially the second half of the letter, where Paul has been imploring us to walk differently than the world outside of us. And so in Ephesians 4.17, he says, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Or in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, walk as God walks. Um, walking in love or imitate God. Walking in love. And then in um, Ephesians 15, 5 verses 15 through 18 in that section, um, he tells us that we should no longer, we should be walking differently. We should be careful with how we walk. Circumspectly is the word that he uses no longer debauched under the control of alcohol or substances, but under the control of the Spirit. And so the idea that Paul has been imploring over and over and over again is that we should be different, very different from the world. Husbands and wives, different from the world. Parents and children, different from the world. And slaves and masters, applied to us, employers and employees, different from the world. A passage that speaks to roughly a third of our time should be one that we examine ourselves next to um, carefully and then strive to align ourselves with what we read and what we see given to us as application. So that's what we're going to do today. But I also want to draw our attention to the fact that Paul refers to Christ in every single verse of the passage. You can, I'm not going to read all of them, but you can kind of glance over it. He refers to Christ in literally every verse, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. He points us and directs us directly to um, Jesus Christ. And so in speaking of Christ, he's central to this passage, obviously, but he's a wonderful example of the proper way for us to work. He has certainly worked hard for the glory of his Father and the good of all of us. His 
people are all those who would believe in him. He has worked in far worse conditions than we would ever work in. He has worked in more evil circumstances than we would ever find ourselves working in. And so he also leaves us an example to follow. And so following that example um, will be something that we look at repeatedly today. So do you work or are you under the authority of someone? Of course, we all are in some way. And so there is something for all of us here today. Uh, And the example for work, as well as the motivation to work, is obviously found in Christ, but it's pointing all of us in that direction. So mothers who work at home and serve their families, and children who work at school, older people in college who go to college and probably work jobs, and husbands who are working in the home and then also outside the home, grandparents who maybe are retired but are serving the church um, with their gifts or even the broader community in one way or another. There's something in this passage that speaks to all of us about how we work. And so I think this is good for all of us. But also to the unbeliever. My assumption every Sunday and leading up to this Sunday is that someone here is not a believer, probably more than one. Whether that be a child or whether that be an adult or maybe a visitor or maybe someone here who's been wrestling with it. My assumption is there's someone here who is not actually uh, a believer. And so if that's you, I'd ask you to pay particular attention to how we are directed to Christ throughout this passage, and especially as we get down towards the end in the last point. Um, And if, as you're going, um, if that's you or you're not sure if that's you, write down questions you have because they might, if you're like me, they'll leave your mind as soon as you get to the next part. So write the questions down. And then maybe we can talk about them later. So we're going to begin with the Bible and slavery. Um, so what about slavery? Questions that we might, might have heard um, are, why wasn't Paul an abolitionist? Um, does that mean that the Bible actually condones uh, slavery? No. Condones is the wrong word there. That's not an appropriate word. Allow would be a right word. Well, then a question might come, well, then if the Bible um, doesn't condone slavery, why doesn't it categorically denounce slavery and call for its end? Uh, Those are good questions. And you may have heard questions like that, especially recently when racial tensions are at at a high in our country. I've heard these questions. I've heard someone challenging the Bible and Christianity by asking me, why then would you worship this God or serve this God or believe this Bible? where the God says to, for slaves to obey their masters as opposed to slaves run from or rebel against your masters. And so it's good to have a good argument for how to handle that. We don't just say, well, that's not what it says. No, it does say that. And so it does say that slaves, um, Paul's um, admonition or exhortation here is for slaves to actually obey their masters. And so we have to have a good understanding of that. Um, briefly stated, The Bible doesn't categorically attack man-made institutions that occur because of or after the fall. Instead, God puts regulations upon them and through Christianity then undermines them. James Henry Thornwell, who ministered in America when slavery was legal in this country, wrote, Slavery is a part of the curse which sin introduced to the world and stands in the same relation to Christianity as poverty, sickness, disease, and death. It is inconsistent with a perfect state, meaning that it is not a good, and it is emphatically not a blessing. Um, He's specifically referring to the slavery that he witnessed in America that we read in our history books about. Um, That's what the Bible refers to as man-stealing, and it's not the same thing that Paul is referring to here. But his statement, Thornwell's statement, is true of every form of slavery. Whether it's in the Old Testament and you have a Hebrew owning a Hebrew as an indentured servant or a Hebrew owning a pagan um, as a prisoner of war or as we move into the New Testament and we see slavery in that light, it doesn't matter what context we find ourselves in, it fits his quote. It is not a good, but very briefly, I think it would be helpful for us to address the issue from the Bible itself, starting with the Old Testament, looking at the New Testament. I'm going to do this really quick because we have a lot of stuff um, to get through after that as we try to seek applications. But if you have questions about that, I'd love to sit down with you and talk further through that. Um, But the Old Testament, um, 
recognized and regulated uh, slavery. So the order needs to be addressed. The order needs to be stated clearly. Uh, the Old Testament did not establish slavery. The Old Testament established laws regarding slavery. Slavery already existed in every nation before we come to Mount Sinai and receive the law. And that law is how slavery is actually reg uh, regulated. So slavery was a post-fall reality that was true of every nation. It didn't come into being with Israel becoming a nation or with the law coming along and giving regulations regarding slavery. Slavery existed prior to the law's Regarding that, in Exodus 20 and 21 and Leviticus 25, laws are given in regards to how to buy slaves, how to sell slaves, how to treat slaves, and what the differences are between indentured servants and uh, prisoners of war. Some of the Old Testament regulations were slaves were to be given Sabbath rest, uh, regardless if they are a prisoner of war or an, uh, a, 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 a similar Hebrew um, um, indentured servant. It didn't matter. They were all to be given um, Sabbath rest. Now, as it pertains to what we think of slavery here in the West, in Exodus 21, 16, God specifically forbids man stealing. So what we understand as slavery, when we think of slavery, is what happened here in America. That's referring to man stealing. The Bible clearly outlaws that or forbids it and then gives the death penalty for not only the person who sells the person, but if, even if you have a slave found in your possession, a sold, stolen slave in your possession, you were given uh, the death penalty. If the other nations followed the Old Testament laws, there never would have been or would have been at least a curbing of the slave trade to the extent that we see, saw here in America. What we know as the slave trade would have been death penaltyed and therefore dramatically curbed um, at the very least. There were also laws for the release of slaves, the year of Jubilee, and so after a number of years, slave would be freed and he'd also be given money um, to help him um, get started on his own. There are also laws concerning slaves and their families and how they should not and could not and would not be separated uh, from one another. So to recognize and regulate does not mean that the Bible says that slavery is a good thing. It doesn't mean that it condones it. The Old Testament laws affirm that every person is created in the image of God and deserves then the recognition and proper treatment in line with the dignity and respect that you'd give to a fellow bearer of God's image. Divorce was also recognized and regulated under Old Testament law. No one would argue the virtues of divorce. That's a good parallel, though, actually. Divorce was also a post-fall reality that was contrary to God's will for two fleshes becoming one flesh for the rest of their um, lives. Divorce regulations were added because of the hardness of man's heart. And so we could say the same thing in regards to Old Testament laws concerning um, slavery. Um, now on to the New Testament. In the New Testament, again, slavery is recognized and regulated, but added to that recognition and those regulations are Christian distinctives. Slavery was still a reality. Obviously, as I said before, 60 million slaves living within the Roman Empire, still a reality for the culture in which, uh, in which he lived, as well as every other culture in every other land. The New Testament does something that had never, ever, 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 ever been done before, ever. It affirms equality between slave and master. That was a revolutionary thought. No other religion, no other nation, no other uh, philosophy ever stated such a thing. Within the context of equality, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, in reference to the church, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So was that a revolutionary, radical idea? Yes. Was it abolitionist? No. Um, so here how the slavery was approached by the New Testament. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, you heard, and we'll go back over that. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, parallel passage, starting in verse 22. I'm not going to pause a lot for us to find the passages because we need to get through a lot, um, but you can write it down. Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Then he goes to masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Then there's the little letter of Philemon, which Kiefer is periodically preaching through, and I think he's hitting... Are you getting into verse 10 yet? No. So he'll hit some verses in Philemon on February 19th. I'm excited to hear that. I'm not sure which one he's going to get to. But in verses 10 through 16, you have this tender heartwarming plea from Paul to Philemon, who has a runaway slave, Onesimus, who got saved when he came and ran away and came to see Paul. And he's pleading with this slave owner to receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother um, in Christ. It's beautiful. Can't wait till he gets to that. So the New Testament assumes slavery, regulates it as a domestic institution, applies to it the gospel, and affirms the equality between slaves and masters. But the apostles were not abolitionists. Paul didn't say, free all the slaves. He was not a political activist. He was a herald of the gospel. And so Christianity is not a political movement. It should affect politics, but it is not a political movement. It is a message of genuine Liberation from the power, not of earthly masters, but of sin. And that's what the apostles were concerned about. But even though they were not abolitionists or political activists, they saw the gospel could transform slaves and masters and therefore slavery. And so in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, he says this, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. And so they did have the opportunity. Slaves in the first century, if you were walking in the street in a marketplace, you probably wouldn't know who was a slave and who wasn't a slave. It looked very similar. They were educated. They had jobs. They had even owned their own businesses. And so they could earn enough money to buy themselves out or they would reach the point where they were freed regardless of of being able to do that. But Paul says, if you can gain it, that's fine. Do it. Go ahead and do it. But he making a statement about who we are in the Lord. Going on, for he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. <laughs> you were both bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So I'm using the word slaves. Your Bibles might read bond servants. That's the sanitizing of the word. It's actually slaves. And so we have our thoughts on the word and we try to read into it. And so I think translators are trying to protect us from that. But the word is slaves. And I think that really becomes important as we get to the end. I think that really hits us. But so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So the apostles taught that masters should be kind um, and fair and just and that slaves should work hard and be honest and that masters and slaves were now brothers in Christ if they had believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, What do we say to the person who says the Bible condones slavery? Well, we say that slavery is not, was not a creation ordinance or mandate. Uh, Work was. Slavery was not. Rather, slavery was a post-fall, pre-Mosaic law institution that God regulated with the law to mitigate the evil or curb the evil of it and undermine it with the gospel. So that's what we say. So that's slavery. Old Testament, New Testament. Can we make the application from that to us in the workplace? Yes, we can. Um, be careful, but we can. So we can, for one, because in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 19, you can read that as well, we see that regardless of who you're in submission to, that there is a certain way to be in submission. It talks about kings or emperors, also talks about slaves and masters, or slaves being subject um, to masters. And so even if it's an authority that is unfair and abusive, here is the way you operate. Here is the way you live within those conditions. Um, Work relationships would certainly fall under that. Also, the master-slave relationship of the first century that Paul is addressing was more akin to indentured servitude that someone fell into for a limited period of time, whether because he sold himself into it, because he fell into debt, and people would do that. They would sell themselves into indentured servitude. They would learn a skill. Uh, They would become educated. um, And then when they left, they would be given a gift, and they would be able to start on their own. And so that's more akin actually, 
uh, to work relationships, we might think. I heard a funny story from Vodi Bakum. I think he was in Zambia. Is that where he's from? Zambia? Or is it Zaire? I think it was Zambia. I'm going to say Zambia. Correct me. Is it? I know, but is he he's originally from Zambia? No? No, no, no. I know he lived. I'm saying ancestors. He's not sure? Well, he seemed to know in this conversation that he had with somebody. He said, because they asked him, why do you not have a, a Z- I think it's Zambia, but it could be. Why do you not have a Zambian name? I'll say an African name. And he said, well, because your ancestors sold it. They said, why do you have a German name, surname? And he said, well, because your ancestors, my ancestors, sold my, fa- my ancestors to Germans. That's why. And so he took the surname Bauckham. Um And so oftentimes that would happen. Um, slaves would take the surnames um, of their um, masters, and they would be treated as family. If you ever want to look up somebody, the black Puritan, Lemuel Haynes. Have you ever heard of him? The guys who were on the men's retreat should have. Lemuel Haynes, we talked about him. Um, um, he has an interesting take on all of this, but it's, it's, it's rather beautiful. So look up Lemuel Haynes, or the, Google the black Puritan, um, if you're interested. So those relationships were closer to our contemporary work relationships than the man-stealing that we think of when we hear the word slave because of our own history. Also, um, your employers do own your time. They do own your efforts during that time. And so um, while you're working for them, they own that time. And so that applies. And then also, many of the sins that we see Paul writing against are true of the, the, the employer-employee relationships. And, and, and we'll sort of see that as we, as we get there. So that's my small case for that. Um, moving on. Slaves, employees that work for masters, employers. And so now we're talking about slaves and employees, and we're in verses 5 through 8 um, of Ephesians. And the first thing that he says, that Paul says, is obey your earthly masters. And I thought that was interesting, just to read that at first. That's sort of the job description of the slave, right? So in that context, it's to obey. Like everything is to obey. And so um, they would be treated harshly. If you remember back to our discussion about fathers and what kind of rights they had in regards to their own children, they could kill their children. They could sell their children into slavery. They could um, um, make the ch- their children their own slaves. But as I said, they could also kill them. They had absolute autonomy over their children. This is Roman fathers. Same was true of slaves. Um, they had that same kind of um, autonomy. So ob- obedience would obviously be expected and demanded. But with the command to obey, there's a difference between willing submission and trying to sort of suppress our rebellion. You've probably heard stories like this, but there's a story of a, of a waiter who's being abused by a customer. The customer's not being very nice. He's being demanding. He's sort of rid- ridiculing him. So the waiter goes into the to get the guy's food, and he's going to bring out his salad. You can probably guess what he did. He, he spit into the man's salad. Um, on the outside, he looked like he was rather, you know, humble and subservient to this customer, but inside he wasn't. Obviously, he was suppressing rebellion, um, sort of, <laughs> not all the way. Um, but Paul is urging here the heart. Um, He's interested in the heart here. So even though slavery is not voluntary, so even if it's because of debt, you're selling yourself into slavery. Slavery wasn't voluntary. Paul says obey from the heart. Obey willingly. Now that will be drastically different from what's going on outside of a Christian relationship between a slave and a, and a master. If, if the slave is obeying from the heart, willingly obeying. So Paul has been urging us to not walk as the Gentiles walk. Again, verse, chapter 4, verse 17. To walk according to the inward reformation uh, that God has begun uh, within us by the power of the Spirit. And so he says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, in verses 18 through 23. And so it's inward. That's what Paul is interested in here as he says, obey your earthly masters. Be obedient from the heart. Now if a, fl- a slave is to be obedient from the heart, willingly obeying his master. How much more should we as employees who have it far easier than slaves did? How much more should we be obedient from the heart? 
I think the answer is obvious. So Paul is saying, want to work hard. Want to do what is right by your employer. Want to be ethical. Want to have integrity mark everything that you do. Want to. Well, the path to that sounds difficult. Even if we take ourselves out of the first century and put ourselves in this century, we have unreasonable bosses. We have many of us, I say us as you, <laughs> have, have, have um, unsaved, lost bosses who can be cruel, who can sort of use their weight to throw around, who can be harsh, who can threaten, like we're going to see a bit later. And so that seems difficult to be obedient from the heart in every circumstance employees should be. Well, the path to that is the way that Paul draws our attention to Christ. And so then he says, with fear and trembling in verse 5. That's pointing us right in that direction because fear and trembling is an Old Testament phrase that only Paul uses in the New Testament. And it always carries with it the idea of fear and trembling before God. The idea here is there's always a higher authority, even judge, than our bosses. A higher one that we should be mindful of. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a citizen, a wife, or a slave. There's always a higher authority. And so work with an eye on the Lord. And Paul says that explicitly. Obey your masters, obey your employers with fear and trembling as you would Christ. Now as a, as a slave, he can compare the years he has under the authority of a master. And imagine that it's the rest of his life, which wasn't always the case, but imagine it's the rest of his life, good or bad. He can compare that to eternity with Jesus Christ, which is heavier, which carries more weight. So how much more should we consider the lordship of Christ when it's just a third of our time over against a boss who owns nothing more than the third of that time? And so if a boss asks us to lie, what do we say? If a boss asks us to cheat on a form or if a, job, a boss asks us to, to, to do something unethical, what do we do? Work as unto Christ, not fearing your boss, what consequences you might get from your boss, even the loss of a job, but fearing first Christ. And so in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. All respect. All respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So even if you have unreasonable bosses, for this is a gracious thing. When? Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. A gracious thing in the sight of God. It's better to be reprimanded by a boss or even lose your job because you are unwilling to disobey God. And so that's, the, that's the, where, the, where the boss oversteps his authority and ask you to do something that will cause you to be disobedient to God, you have to obey God and suffer the consequences of that. And Christ is our example. Verse 23, same passage in 1 Peter, who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So if that happens, if you suffer unjustly, it's a wonderful testimony to others, to your boss included. How you suffer is a testimony to the grace of God and the glory of God. How you work and how you suffer for doing what is right is a testimony to who carries the most weight in your life, in your heart. Do you grumble about things? Having to work more than you want? Do things maybe you don't want to do even though they're ethical? Or Do you threaten to quit? Or do you endure with an eye on the just God who is gracious. And it is a gracious thing. It is a gift to suffer for doing what is right. So obey your earthly masters, also earthly employers, willingly from the heart, but with the knowledge that you owe Jesus your highest obedience. Seek first his kingdom and all and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. If you lose because of your suffering. Do what is right. We'll see in just a moment. Um, God will take care of you. God gives back. We'll see that in just a moment. Also, with a sincere heart, 
not grudgingly, so not working, not obeying, um, um, grudgingly, but sincerely desiring, desiring the best for your employers. So Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might, he says. Whatever your fa- hands find to do, do it with your might. The word here is actually generous, a generous heart. And so in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, in the con- it's the context of giving. And, and, and God is the one who grants to us what we are to give then, then to others. And in that sense, it was in the, fa- in the, in the, in the form of, of money to, to a suffering church. Um, um, he'll supply you, is the lesson. But same with our work. Work generously. Go the extra mile um, is the picture. He'll supply you with the strength that you need, with the might that you need, and everything else that you need to, to work generously or sincerely. So don't snooze and snooze and snooze until you're late. This goes for everyone. Students, moms, dads, kids, don't be begrudging with your work or with your time. Don't cut corners to save time. Don't take shortcuts. Work for the good of your employer as you would unto Christ. Every day you should think, this is what I did for Christ. I want to present my work to Christ. And what I did today. Um, not as eye service. He goes on, verse 6. Eye service means to work um, in order to draw attention to yourself, essentially, first. Uh, those who serve to be seen or applauded, like working to get your picture on the wall. It's not wrong to be recognized. It's not wrong um, to be given an attaboy or to be given a promotion or anything like that, but to work, but you're not to work for that. To work for your employer as unto Christ. And so eye service is also working hard only when your boss is watching. It's a horrible sin that I, that I committed when I was in school. We had a substitute teacher, which was pretty often um, in, in Montana. I don't know if that was the way it was everywhere, but we had substitute teachers a lot. And when that happened, it was like, in my mind, licensed to be bad, to be disrespectful, to not do my work, to do things that I shouldn't do that got me in trouble. But the same thing happens in the course of the day when our bosses aren't looking look at our phones instead of laboring hard. I, I made a deal with myself in terms of my time or my work. I made a deal that I would not use a phone or a tablet or a computer for things other than what I'm trying to do for work. So I'm not going to look at an article, political article that I might want to read, or I'm not going to check out ESPN to see what the scores are. Unless it's March Madness, I might look a little bit, but um, um, not scroll through Instagram or through, through things like that to see what's up with Harper and Rosie maybe for the day. You know, I, I have time to do that, that later on, but not too much because I don't want to take away from my family. But um, you should do the same. So when you're at work, you don't watch YouTube when you're supposed to be working or you don't scroll through social media when you're supposed to be working or you're not sloughing off when the boss isn't around only to get busy as soon as he comes around um, or you hear him coming. So it also apply to not taking longer breaks than you're supposed to. All of that is stealing time. So we cover that in chapter 4. Um, that's stealing time um, that your employer owns. So not for eye service. And do it with goodwill, he says in verse 7, the beginning of verse 7, meaning do it cheerfully or with joy, without grumbling. That's usually where we start, isn't it? I do it too. How's work going? I'm so busy right now. The first thing out of our mouth is how hard it is or how bad it is at that, at that moment. It's such a burden. Or I don't do this one because I do love my job, but some, but some uh, will begin with, here's all the bad stuff that's happening at work. How was your work this week? Well, here's, here's what my boss is doing to me now or, or what he's expecting of me. The conditions are so awful. That's grumbling. Now, if Paul calls on slaves to obey their masters from the heart and work generously and work hard all the time, not just when being watched, and to do it with goodwill or to do it cheerfully, how much more easier would it be for us? This will kind of tell us how we're doing in the other things. If we're coming home and we're grumbling or responding to our friends and the first words out of our mouth about work is grumbles, grumbles, and grumbles, it's probably because the other things aren't right first. We're not really working as unto Christ, as unto the Lord. So that's a good barometer. So Paul makes it clear that everything we do is to be done as unto the Lord. And so that is the source. The Lord, Christ, is the source for how we work and all of our motives for working. It's all tied up in our union with Jesus Christ. Um, Everything in this passage is with an eye towards that relationship. 
And so obey from your heart willingly, just as you would obey Christ, because that's what it is in your work. Your boss gives you a directive that's not outside of God's will. That's from Christ, too. <laughs> obey as if it comes from Christ. Um, So serve your boss as you would Christ because that's where he has you. And thinking this way about our work frees us to show respect to our bosses, which is part of the fear and trembling part. To show them respect. Good or bad bosses, be able to show them respect. Enables you also to see that whether you're a slave or an employee, no matter what your job is, there is dignity in that job. You're laboring for Christ. What you're doing is for your master in heaven. So Martin Luther spoke about a, uh, how whether you're serving as a monk, not everyone can be a monk. And so there's also uh, the housemaids who are sweeping the floors and doing the dishes. There is no difference between secular and sacred. All work is sacred. And so there was a housewife who hated doing dishes and she hated doing the pots and pans. And so she grumbled about it and grumbled about it, then felt convicted as she opened up the scriptures. And so she put a sign above, I saw, I read, I read this. She put a sign above the, 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 the sink that said, uh, divine work is done here three times a day. And so she saw that as an opportunity, a reminder, here's an opportunity for me to worship God. And not only that, just as husband's probably not going to see it that way, kids are probably not going to see it that way, but Christ will see it that way. And that's the important thing. Christ will see it that way. There's no separation between sacred and secular. It's all unto the Lord. That is a tremendously freeing um, view of work. Um, again, 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24, for he, I'll kind of skip down, for he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when is called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Your vocation, whatever it is, is holy because that's where God has you. Whether you're slave or free, whether you're in full-time ministry or not, or whether you're working construction or a teacher or whatever, it's your calling. Is it wrong to look for another job? No, we're free to do that. Um, but work hard um, in those jobs. Don't leave grumbling. Don't leave in a way that's not appropriate. Um, but regardless, your status doesn't change based on the job that you have or the job that you get. It's all sacred. It's all holy because no matter what, slave or free, we're all serving Christ. And that's how we, sh how we should view it. So also with the reward, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will he receive back. So I kind of already mentioned this. We'll receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free or is a slave or is free. That's a pretty incredible verse. Whatever you do, whatever sacrifice there is, God will give back. The world has a saying that no good deed goes unpunished. Isn't that, isn't that a phrase? No good deed goes unpunished. That ain't right with God. That's not God at all. That's not the way God operates. Jesus said, no, not one cup of water given in his name will go without reward. <laughs> and so when work is hard uh, and you work for unreasonable bosses and your work is never seen and you're not rewarded for your integrity or maybe you're even punished for it, you can know that your heavenly father sees it and will reward you. Now, the reward could itself be more responsibility. It could be more trust from your employer. It could be moving up in some way. I won't deny those as possible rewards based on what we're seeing here. Providentially, God doing that. But primarily, this is speaking, I think, eschatologically. In the new heavens and the new earth, the rewards we'll receive there where neither rust um, nor moth will erode it away. They will endure forever. So whatever you do, don't do it as a slave to the company, but as a slave to Christ. And now, in thinking of your work, consider it, examine yourself, examine the way you work, examine the way you respond to your work, repent where you need to, um, but then hope, find a hope in how Paul is speaking to us here and how Christ enables us. We'll get to that again as we get to the end. So, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we only have one verse left, so we'll be quick. Um, verse 9, masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with them. So the first thing, do the same to them. What does that mean? Well, I think he primarily means that act 
in the same regard toward the authority of Jesus Christ as was just told to slaves to act in regard to the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, Slaves regard Christ as their Lord. Masters regard Christ as their Lord. Um, Same thing to you as employers. Um, um, There's also a... um, a way to think here in terms of what was said and same to them. Think of respect. Think of generosity. Think of all of those things that slaves were just told to offer to the master. Think also in that terms of employer to um, an employee. So it's not one-to-one slavery in the first century to workplaces. Now, slaves were actually in the homes And so there was a relationship that was garnered and that Paul is imploring and that it would be oftentimes familial um, between the the father of the home or the family of the home and the the slave. Not always, but but oftentimes that would be the case. But But just the same, as employers, you should think in those terms as well, especially if you have believing um, employees. Um, You too be generous with your time for them. Work to help them improve in their work. Work to help them move forward um, in their jobs. Then he says, stop threatening them. One of the first things to realize as an employer uh, is to realize that you have great power. So what's the Spider-Man phrase? With great power comes great responsibility. Is that what it is? You knew it? I'm sorry. I didn't see your hand quick enough. I wanted to look cool and say that I knew Spider-Man too. But anyway, um, it's true, you have lots of power. And one of the ways to really think about this is in terms of how you motivate people. Again, everything that you do is governed by your relationship to Christ and under the control of the Spirit, Ephesians um, 5.15. Um, and using Christ as our example, how does Christ motivate you? Does Christ motivate you with legalism? Um, does he motivate you with grace? Does Christ motivate you with harsh treatment or with kindness? Does he motivate you with threats or with promises or with grace, uh, with love? That's not to say that Christ doesn't have high expectations of us. He does. Um, And we are confronted with those high expectations every time we open up the Bible. So employers, you should have high standards for your employees. But don't use threats to motivate. One way to determine that is what is the morale of your employee or if you have more than one, your employees. What's the basic morale of your employees? Do you make it easier for them to grumble or easier for them to be cheerful? Do you make it easier for them to complain or easier for them to rejoice um, about their work? One good practice might be to ask your employees what they think of that. Um, As in every relationship, for some reason, affirmations or commending others is hard for us when we're painfully quick to point out what's wrong um, in someone else or what they're doing. So work at being more encouraging. Um, Also then know that your master is in heaven. So in verse 8, we read, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. So that's sort of a segue into verse 9. And so the master, who just heard verse 8, says, Well, that's true of both slave and free. So this is also true of me. There's a master in heaven who also sees me who also sees my labors, who also sees what I'm sacrificing, what I lose. And so I can trust him as well. Um, um, And so um, verse 9, do the same to them. Don't threaten. Don't worry about what you might lose because you think you should threaten. Don't threaten. Um, All the while remembering your master is in heaven. He's there for you too. He's also uh, able to repay you for your service to him through how you manage uh, your workers. Then also, no partiality with Christ. This is the principle by which you manage. <laughs> you are all slaves of Christ. So John Eady, I think, is one of the has some of the best commentaries on the on the um, epistles. But he says the gold ring of the bastard uh, master, <laughs> the gold ring of the master does not attract the eye of the Lord. Neither does the iron fetter of um, the slave. Um, I misspoke. Don't lose sight of what we're saying. He said, The gold ring of the master does not attract the eye of the Lord, neither does the iron fetter on the slave. 
God shows no partiality. Jesus is Lord of lords, and as such, he is Lord of slaves, and he is Lord of masters. He is the Lord of your slave. He is Lord of your employee. This is he is the Lord of you. He is Lord of all. So keep that in mind. So, employers, remember how Christ motivates you to serve him with love, not threats. Christian bosses, remember how you are to lovingly confront those who work for you because there will be times you have to confront them um, about poor work or about not meeting the high standards that you have, but do so with grace. Do so with trying to help them. Um, Make that part of your job. Also, Christian bosses know that Christ has redeemed work. It's not a curse, but a gift. And so try to inculcate that in your employees. Work is not a curse. Work is a gift. It's a grace that's given to us. And so help them see that, especially lost people, that Christ has redeemed work in that way. And that's a gift for us to do. Um, Let's move on to the last part. There's more, but we don't have time for more. So the last part is for us to really look at Christ in the context of all of this stuff we've been saying and how Paul's constantly driving us back to Christ, but also in the bigger picture of how Christ and slavery itself is represented. When we think of slavery in the Bible, it reveals some very profound truths to us, dear truths to us as Christians. The Bible's most profound truths, or some of the most profound truths, come to us by way of paradox. <coughs> for instance... Salvation is free, but it costs everything. Or to be truly rich, you must become poor. Or the one who loses his life for his sake shall find it. Or the last shall be the greatest. We can add slavery to that. First, slaves are to render their service to their masters willingly. That itself is a paradox. A a willing slave. Christ so transforms the heart that slavery is transformed or work is transformed into honor and liberty. Slavery that in the world represents a total denial of freedom becomes in Christ freedom. Jesus came into the world as a slave not to offer us freedom from slavery but to a new kind of slavery that is true freedom. That's the paradox that slavery in Christ is freedom. Slavery in Christ is freedom. When you say that you're a Christian, you're saying that you were bought. You're readily proclaiming that you were bought with a price, that we are not our own, that we have a Lord, we have a master, we have someone who has bought us and owns us. Romans 6, 22. Now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, Bob Dylan said, you got to serve someone in a song. Uh, You're either a slave of the devil or a slave of Christ, and so that's the alternative. If you serve Christ, you were once a slave of the cruelest master that has ever, ever been. Sin and the world and the devil. And in the midst of that hopeless estate, God chose to rescue you through Christ. And so Christ then bought you with his life, his blood, for the remission of your debts, of your sins. So God not then only purchased you, he cleansed you. This is slavery. God not only purchased you, he cleansed you and clothed you with righteous clothes, that being the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. And then he welcomes you into his household as a co-heir with Christ. This freedom, as we said, came at a great cost. Jesus had to become a slave so that you could become a son. And that's another paradox. Christ submitted himself as a slave to die on the cross so that we could be free as slaves to him. (laughs) But you ask, if I'm a slave of Christ, how is that true freedom? Well, it's another paradox. Freedom is not what we think it is. Freedom is not doing what we want to do whenever we want to do it. Freedom is liking what you should do. True freedom is liking, is loving what you ought to do in obedience to God. First Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. And so, if you're a believer in Christ, you are free to obey. You are free to obey everything that we've said today. 
you are free to obey that which your soul craves in obedience to God, which your soul, if you're a believer, does, that which you crave to be in obedience to, Christ gives to you that ability to be obedient as his slaves. You have a freedom to embrace what is good for your soul and to say no to that which damages your soul. Prior to Christ, all you could choose is that which damaged your soul. And now you're free to choose that which is good for your soul. He has broken the power of sin and self and freed you to obey even things that we said today and things that we said today show very beautiful pictures of that kind of freedom. Willingly obeying at our jobs. Reasonable boss, unreasonable boss. Doing it cheerfully, doing it with respect. We're free to do that. Christ has empowered us, enabled us through the new creation, the gift of the Holy Spirit to do that. So I close with the last thing is, is whose slave are you then? <laughs> you will get the wages. You will get wages in accord <laughs> with that. You either get death or you'll get life. And life is only found in Christ. So if you're not a believer here today, that's my prayer for you, that you would become freed from the slavery of sin and self and the devil and, and freed to slavery to Christ, which is true freedom. And he never, ever, ever leaves you unsatisfied. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for, um, for work. Uh, we thank you for the work that you give us by which we glorify you and are a benefit to others. We pray, Father, for us who are employees, that we would work as unto the Lord, for us as employers, that we would manage as unto the Lord. But all of us would seek to serve you with our lives, our time, all of our time. You have bought it all with a price, a great price. Father, we thank you and we love you and we ask you that today you would save one who is a slave of sin today and make him a slave of your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.